Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series. I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books. If you aren't familiar with us, we are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day right now from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. with a mask. We also do online orders at our website, skylightbooks.com and curbside pickup if you're in the area. All right. So today I'm really excited. We have uh, an author on the podcast who's going to tell us about her new novel. And um, I'll I'll introduce her in just a moment. But uh, first, I just wanted to give one last plug for our upcoming events schedule. Um, We're having virtual events on our Crowdcast, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. You can check check us out there, follow our page for upcoming events. We've got lots of good stuff. Um, and as always, thank you so much for listening. So today on the podcast, we have Shalu Guo. Uh, Shalu, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to speak to you about your new novel, A Lover's Discourse. Maybe novel isn't the right word for it, though, and we can get into that a little bit later. Um, before we start our conversation, I want to read your full bio so everybody knows who you are. So. Shalu Guo was born in South China and moved to London in 2002. Her novels have been shortlisted for the Women's Prize and the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize and longlisted for the Man Asian Literary Prize. Her memoir, Nine Continents, was awarded the National Book Critics Circle Award in Autobiography. Her critically acclaimed films include She, A Chinese, and a documentary about London, Late at Night. Based in London and Berlin, Guo is currently a visiting professor at Baruch College of the City University of New York. Her new book is A Lover's Discourse. It comes out October 13th from Grove Press. Shalu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, So this book is kind of in conversation with uh, another book, which, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but I wanted to see if you could start us off with just a short reading from the text, um, something to give our listeners a little taste. Sure. So I'll be reading um, from middle part of A Lover's Discourse. So the middle part is about the, the woman character travels back to China um, in this artisan village and he tries to get a copy of a famous Da Vinci's painting by this Chinese artisan Smith, um, actually self-trained man um, in this artisan village. Although every section is very short, um, composed by 
a few conversations and each section is about a page and a half. So it should be quite good for me to read like that. Section, during my second summer in Britain, the trip came and I had to leave you as well as the boat or I would fail my PhD. I told you that I would only be gone for two weeks and you said you would miss me. But you would occupy yourself with work on the boat and on some landscapes. I'm very used to being alone, you added. And then in hesitant Chinese, 一个人. Yes, 一个人, alone. After handing over a dozen administrative forms and receiving signed permission from my supervisor, I took some camera equipment with me and left our boating life for China. I was flying to a hot and a bustling southern province near Shenzhen. I was not going back to my hometown, a hometown with two new gravestones and a somber memories. The umbilical cord was cut forever. In this case, I prefer the German, Vaterland, rather than Motherland, I said to you, before I headed off to Heathrow Airport. Well, for me, I rather think China is my fatherland. And then you responded, but in our Vaterland, we still speak Muttersprache. You responded, walking me to the train station. After long and agonized flight, my plane landed in Shenzhen. Heat and dampness kissed my face as soon as I got off the plane. Tropical plantations with large leaves and bright red rhododendrons welcomed me by the highways. Here I was, back in my country after a year as a researcher, with foreign eyes and a Western perspective. I like this feeling, I thought to myself, so I didn't need to bear the heavy weight of this country. I was just passing through like I was passing through England. And next section is about, she's leaving China after her research as a anthropologist, um, after her painting was done by the artisan. And it's called Memory and Architecture. Two days before I left China, I took a bus and traveled around the outskirts of Shenzhen. Only two hours away towards Fujian province, numerous villages and rice paddies appeared. The mountains were green and blue and dotted with houses. Then I saw the ever familiar water buffaloes treading ponderously through swampland. By the rice fields, there were sweet potato farms and their heart-shaped leaves spreading out furiously and forming entangled vines. This was the landscape I grew up with, and this was the landscape in which I had lived before my family moved. My father had found a job in the city, and my mother wanted to leave the farming life. Everyone was leaving their farming life back then, and in my Laojia, my old home village, we had water buffaloes, and I used to ride on their bare backs when I was a child. But after I finished primary school, our field 
was obliterated by new roads and we saw our house and the animals. We moved to the 15th floor of a brand new tower in the industrial town. Once or twice, we went back to the old village, but it was now a double lane expressway dotted with traffic lights. On both sides of the road, more construction sites, and there's one, there was no sign of rice patties, buffaloes, or farmhouses. The landscapes I had known from childhood had been erased. And I thought, if you were here with me, I would ask you this. Do you think memory constructs architecture or does architecture construct memory? What would you say? But you would probably say something like both or maybe neither. And I imagined my frustration with your answer. Our conversation would probably go on like this. But what does that mean? Well, it's our memory of the unattained and something greater that leads us, that leads us to construct architecture. But at the same time, architecture is a house of all our memories. Would I be satisfied with the answer? Not sure. Architecture is a house of all our memories. My memories of childhood were to do with farmlands, mountains, and the creeks that seeped into our fields and disappeared underneath our feet. And my memories of the teenage years in the in the new town. Okay, I'll do that again. And my memories of the teenage years in the new town we moved to were about how my parents tried to adapt to urban life, to an industrialized life, and how my heart longed for something greater, something far away, but beautiful, something more imaginative. Was all this part of your grand house of architecture? Thank you. Beautiful. Sorry, I, I think there's one word I say something a bit strange. I think obliterated, what's this word? Um, obliterated? Yeah. Ob obliterated. Did you understand? Should I do it again? I understood. In the context, yeah. I think it makes sense. Okay. So this sentence, our, fields, our field was obliterated. Our field was obliterated by new roads. Sorry. Hopefully you can make out. It's just my Chinese accent and Chinese uh, tongue is very uh, stubborn tonight. I couldn't really somehow. Right. I, th I, think, I think it comes through very clearly. Like the, the the emotionality comes through very clearly. So uh, I think it'll. I think we'll we'll get a clean read on that. Okay. Great. Great. Thank you so much for those readings. Wow, your prose is just beautiful. I really was transported both in both of those sections. Um, and I think so much of this book is about transportation, movement, exchange. Um, it's, it's very unsettled. It never stays in one place. Um, do you, can you talk a little bit about sort of the, the conception of this book? Where did it come from and um, what is it in conversation with? Yeah, um, interesting. Um, when this reference, when reference is very internal, it's coming from my own uh, novel, my early novel, 
uh, called A Concise Chinese in English Dictionary for Lovers. And I wrote it when I left China, came to Britain around 17 years ago, 16 years ago. And I wrote that novel in broken English because then I couldn't really write or speak proper English. And still now you can tell my accent, my strange grammar, my sentence is not properly, you know, rendered. But then was much more broken. Um, so I wrote a novel about a lover's com conversation between men and women, a Chinese woman and an English man. And it's about their kind of feverish, almost a battle-like everyday life. And there's no complicated story or, or there's no actual narrative, but it's really about the confusion of words um, through a, Chinese, a pair of Chinese eyes and then an English mind, you know, so it's a love battle between men and women. And that was a novel in such a strange broken English um, in, in this strange present tense, because in Chinese grammar, we don't have verbal conjugation. So the verb never changes. And we don't have, of course, R-N-G or E-D, you know, those change. So that novel was written in a strange present tense with everything, whenever there's a verb, there's R-N-G decorating the verb, because for a Chinese mind, things we live in the present tense, so we, we thought that would be the proper kind of indication of is, is a present tense. And uh, strangely, I thought the novel would never publish, but the novel was published a few years later and it was rather well received and it was translated to many languages. So I suddenly began my life in the West as a Chinese writer, but in broken English. But with that novel, actually my, my original desire was to pay homage to, to this French author called Roland Barthes and one of his amazing book called The Lover's Discourse, Fragments. And really, I was very affected by that book when I was reading in Chinese translation. So I thought that early novel was some sort of kind of my attempt to get close to, to that book. But really, you know, that novel published without my um, in position, you know, become kind of independent child and just to launch itself into the world, um, become totally away from me. And after all these years being living in Britain and then living in um, Germany and France, and then recently have been living in New York you know, for teaching. So I have written more English books, you know, in my second language. And my relationship to English language has changed, but still it is very odd. You know, I'm sort of like a, a naive dictionary writer. You know, I write with words I understand and often they are very Chinese sounding and with my own kind of odd understanding of certain English style. So then after all these years and I thought, okay, now it's time I can return to my very first novel I wrote in English, but write another one. But this one would be much more close to the book I wanted to write, Roland Barthes, A Lover's Discourse. So that's how my novel um, came about um, with similar title, but it was really constructed again, a man and woman without names. And it's a book about their conversation um, but they take us to this journey of searching for their common home uh, because she's a Chinese film anthropologist 
and she's drifting the West. And then he is kind of German-Australian landscape architect. So he, I wouldn't call his journey in the West is drifting because Europe is his land. And the landscape for him is kind of playground to play with great ideas, the ground design. So for them, looking for a common home is a kind of contradictive, you know, it's, it's a conflict. It's, it's, a, it's an identity they somehow, they, 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 they can't share, but they want to share and they want to find, find a common identity uh, with, with their love life. So that's more or less, you know, the book is about. I liked, especially in these two sections that you read, that there seems to be this balancing act you're doing between kind of the insubstantial, the conditional, the emotional, sort of the, the context of the relationship, and then the land as this very compelling, beautiful image that you want to you want to dive into. I mean, those descriptions of the water buffalo um, that felt that felt so vivid to me. But then there's also the sense that it's already gone. We've already lost that. Um, so I, I really like that push and pull. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about the role of land in this book and, and, you know, how do we kind of locate ourselves within landscapes and also within relationships? And are they, are those kinds of locations different or similar? Mm, I think you picked up a very, you know, essential theme for me and you know, for most of my writings and my books really, you know, the idea of land and homeland. And I think it, it has been my kind of a constant theme or obsession, you know, especially for this book, you know, our relationship to the land. And I think I was very affected by the German philosopher Heidegger's idea uh, about, you know, way supposed to, humans supposed to be poetically, um, dwell on this land, you know, that the relationship to our land should be poetic. Um, and as a dwelling should be humanistic. And, and I think this idea has been completely almost forgotten or been, you know, mutate, mutated, you know, I think since the industrial revolution happened in, in England, I think the last 200 years or, or even 300 years, in first in the West, in Europe, and then in, in America, and then in Asian countries, you know, the traditional homeland is no longer available. It's completely been transformed by industrial landscape. And I think for me, someone grew up in a very agricultural landscape where my ancestor plowed with, with, with you know, rice fields, water buffaloes. And then later on, my, my grandparents became fishermen. They, they had a boat and we lived by the sea and we had massive fishing nets in our yard. Um, I think my relationship to the land suddenly was cut very violently when I moved to a factory town where my parents lived, uh, you know, in later years. And in all my teenage years, I lived in this brand new town with everything, you know, like five years history is already brand new. 10 years history is already like, we need to remove it, rebuild it better way, you know. And I think suddenly I was located in this factory industry town with everyone whose identity is a worker, factory worker or builder to build something new, to make some kind of industrial product. Suddenly, I think this was kind of violent experience in my life, you know, as, 
as a young writer. And I thought about that a lot. And I had this kind of nostalgia of um, going back to the past, which is no longer there. And then when I came to the West, I was 29. And I decided to leave my country behind and to live in the West. So first Britain, then Germany, then France. And, um, and I, I think this isolation become kind of a double isolation because the linguistic identity I have lost. Um, and then indeed, you know, I'm in, in the just completely foreigner's place. I'm in a foreign land speaking foreign language. So I thought a lot about identities in, in, in the traditional way in early years. And now I no longer think identity in, in those terms, you know, because once you uproot it, you are, you know, you left, you really left the past. And um, when you came to a, a, a culture which is quite far away from East Asian culture, then again, you recreate yourself, you know, with new language. So all these become, I think, you know, a theme in this book about our relationship to the idea of motherland or fatherland, you know, I use the German expression here. And the sentence, the male character said to her, you know, don't worry, even in our fatherland, we speak a mother tongue, the in, in German. So the, the idea is what is the mother and the motherland, what is mother tongue, um, this strange complex relationship when we are uprooted, right? And I think this is very common phenomenon now, you know, in our urban life. And I thought it was very interesting, you know, there's some kind of aspects of, you know, generated by this pandemic, you know, our relationship to our home, to our apartment, to our house, you know, where we should go actually during the pandemic, you know, where's actual comfortable home, which allow us to be, you know, or if we have a garden, if we have a piece of land, we should return to that place during the pandemic, right? So something really interesting about, you know, the idea of land and the loss of the idea, right? Yeah, I've been seeing um, some conversations on, on Twitter about, you know, various liberal pundits telling people that now is the time to move back to the Midwest to reclaim the empty land there and, and turn it back into you know, this liberal utopia that we want the United States to be. Um, but I think that erases a lot of things, right? Like the, you know, the native populations, the history of violence in that land. And um, it's not easy. You can't, you just can't go back anymore. There's so much layering of history that's happened on over our land everywhere, all over the globe that, um, yeah, I think these old ways of rooting ourselves are no longer functional. Um, mm. and, I, and I like that, your protagonist, the Chinese woman in this in this book, that she settles on language as kind of her her new system of meaning and rooting. Um, can you talk about maybe a word or a, a a concept that she particularly attaches to or finds a sense of home in? That's quite difficult. Um, you ask a very I'm sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, that's that's very interesting. You ask amazing PhD question. Um, because I think you asked a particular word, right? So that's why I'm just looking rather than just answer you randomly. Um, unknown language. Um, do you think it's too much if I just read this little page to answer your question? Or, or, or please read. Yes, I'd love yeah? to. Yeah. Or, or, or is it a bit boring? Or Not should I? No, I okay. would love to hear it. Okay. Okay. Cool. It's short. So to answer your question, 
actually, I will be just uh, um, be naughty. I'm just going to read this tiny section called An Unknown Language in the later part of my book. The unknown language around me, the murmuring mass around me, except that this was not a murmuring mass in Japan, in Roland Barthes' book. No, this was a loud mass in Italy. Where in Italy? And this language was not too foreign for you. And you could make out many words, especially from food menus. But it was foreign for me, even though this culture uses the same 26 Latin letters, just like most European languages, the same alphabet. But I didn't come from this alphabet. I came from the non-alphabetic. I came from ideograms. I came from 50,000 Chinese characters, and each character is composed with many symbols and strokes, like a tangled forest of meanings. Also, I didn't feel this delicious protection that Roland Barthes felt. The only protection for me would be to really try to understand the foreign language so that I, a secondary citizen in a white European world would not downgrade into a third-rate citizen. But I knew that even if one day I could master foreign language and one of the major European languages, I would still not become a primary citizen of the West. Yeah, I think, I think looking at the physical forms of the letters being different um, that's just such a profound dislocation because even the lines that make up the language are unfamiliar um, and, and totally strange and new. Absolutely. And I think this book is also very much um, making a sort of conversation from um, Roland Barthes' um, early work called The Science of Empire. And it's a little book about uh, his visit to Japan and how he was you know, describing in my, in my section called the, the, the unknown language, the murmuring mass during his visit in Japan, and the pictograms and the Hanzi work, kanji in Japanese, how that inspired him, but also, you know, created this kind of complete isolation around him, you know, as if those signs are, it's just absolute wallpaper speaking nonsense, speaking nothing to him, yet speaking everything at the same time. And I think it was very inspiring for me as someone used to write my Chinese books in Chinese. Um, and then suddenly I stopped when I was 30 years old and I began my, my, the, my books in English and the last seven books I wrote in English. So it's very strange, you know, suddenly I pick up the second language without training. And I realized that the transition between um, my pictogram to the Western alphabetic language is something beyond the linguistic. You know, it's something so internal, so psychological that I began, you know, my, my, the themes in my novel basically is about language, the difference of language. And it's my love affair with these languages um, I'm using and speaking, you know, broken or not broken. So perhaps that's really what's this book about. Hmm. 
That's so fascinating. I could I could listen to you talk about the linguistics of this forever. And I'm and I'm particularly interested if um, if there are things that you've found that you can do as a novelist in English that you couldn't do as a novelist in Chinese and vice versa. If there are things that are I'm, I know that there are. I'm sure that there are. But I'm curious, um, you know, what what's lost and what's gained between the translations. Yes, very good question. I think if you're entirely in, you know, living within one language um, without exit or without the second language, then you don't realize which language you are, you are living in because it's almost like that's this entity, a complete entity. And then when I was writing Chinese, I published about eight or nine books in Chinese when I was in Beijing. I didn't even realize you know, that's the Chinese pictogram I was writing. And also in Chinese language, because it's very Asian language with the writing, the, the, the metaphors are everywhere when you write. So instead, instead we say, you know, um, rose is red, we, we would say, you know, the, the honeymoon was, was, was rosy, or, you know, something, uh, maybe a bit more Chinese, I'm just using a very banal English example. Um, or you know when we when we say bamboo, we're meaning the man is is upright, you know, it, with integrity. You know, these kind of very direct metaphors everywhere, sentence by sentence. But you don't realize that when you write within that language, living in that language. Suddenly, I when I left, came to the West, writing English in the first, you know, first year, second year. I suddenly realized all this metaphor won't work if I don't translate in a completely different way in English. And therefore I realized I'm going through this multiple translational process when I actually just write one English sentence because the metaphor lost its own reference or meaning. And uh, also the dead metaphors in Chinese suddenly become very vivid, very oddly alive in English translation. And then I began my, my kind of English writing in a very strange way. Uh, so I can't say if that's the freedom or the, or the restriction I had, but I do suffer. So, so you, you see that, you know, all these things you didn't notice before become immense when you write in second language. But of course, these are just little examples. But if I was writing in my native language, Chinese, there are certain things I couldn't write, of course, you know, because severe censorship, because of political, um, you know, surveillance, yeah, the whole, the whole thing in my mind, like shadowing body, telling me what not to write or what should I write, you know, that I can't even control is so deep embedded in me. So, so then this enormous freedom when I was writing in second language in English, whether broken or not, suddenly I had this mental freedom without realizing, actually, there's a word called censorship, because the absolute uprootedness left me this kind of empty virgin land, lonely but yet free. Yeah, mm. so I had this kind of complete horizon belonged to me, which I could write sci-fi or detective novel or you know anything too sensitive or sexual or political, um, which I couldn't really think in Chinese in a way. You know, so that might be a wonderful advantage in a way mentally. But then once you have to verbalize this content, then the actual painful process began again, is you are dealing with this particular language, which is not your mother tongue at all. Mm -hmm. Then the, the actualization is, is a process which is 
you know, as painful, as joyful, you know, equal, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm still on this journey and I think it's gonna be the, the journey of the rest of my life. Yeah, I think, I think that that passage about the murmuring crowd kind of encapsulates us so well that, that there is this profound isolation, but that it is also an estrangement that brings you freedom, right? That, that if you don't know what the rules are, you don't know if you're breaking them and you don't care if you're breaking them. <laughs> Um, so I think, I think that's a really apt, uh, an apt image for it. Well, I wanted to address, um, before we kind of close our conversation, though I wish we could keep talking for a long time because I have so many questions for yeah, you. I have cut now, so, because we, we had a lot already. So maybe uh, we should keep it short, yeah. Okay, so this is my last one. So, so you were a filmmaker before you were a novelist, and you've said that um, you like to think of your books as documentary novels. I'm curious sort of what that means to you and kind of what the relationship is between your history of, as a filmmaker and uh, between the, the novels that you write now. I think I very rare, I mean, very, I think really rarely I see, you know, what, what is my profession, you know, I somehow I, I don't live in a, in a professional life. I mean, I mean that in a sense, I never really belonged to any institution, but yet all my life is extremely busy, you know, making films, funding, fundings, you know, doing the actual film production and writing novels, publishing, and then, and then long editing process, then, you know, go on the festival trip, you know, reading. Um, I conduct very busy life, but, but without an actual profession. And um, in a way, it's funny because filmmaking is very natural. I had all these years in a film school in the West and then in China. Um, I I wouldn't say, you know, I, I don't find myself overlapping these two areas. Strangely, my films could never be novelized or, or become a book because my most of my, my films are street. Also, almost like what you can say street documentaries. Even some of my films are fiction feature, but I use street people as my actors. And I use the street where we live as a kind of set, you know, backdrop. And then if they are, they're supposed to be actors, they just improvise the lines, you know, loosely based on the script I wrote or no script at all. And indeed most of my films are documentary films. So they are completely really about vivid, flowing street life in, in front of us. And I have a concept you know, with with the camera person, or indeed I myself do the camera most of the time. So I control what, what I was filming and editing. Anyway, so this kind of method, um, which is not, you know, overlapping in my novel writing life, because the writing is more about internal monologue, uh, internal voice, which cannot be rendered easily in a visual form. And indeed, for example, like this kind of book, you know, the section I just read is so much about the internal voice, you know, within one person, but pre pretending it's, it's two person, you know, lovers having conversation with each other, as if a man or woman try to find answers and having a love affair, but also hating and, and the battles between, right? And so this is a book, it, it, my books are books of monologue, and this is very old fashioned, you know, 18th century kind of confession which cannot be rendered, I think, with a visual narrative, because also they are not interested in the, in the stories or big narrative at all. And they are like diary writing, you know, collecting the moments of life in our daily life. 
and, and uh, have certain kind of very quiet female quality. Um, so that is, you know, not easy to, to be, you know, visualized with, with this very external um, method with a, with a big team, you know, to, to do uh, a, a cinema, a film. So um, I do separate, you know, the, the, the practice, but yet I cannot tell you how organic I was doing each time. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think because it's your work is so much about trying to express the inexpressible and, and you know, capture these kind of moments that, that flit by us and that we don't really have words for. Yeah, and, and film as a medium must have a concrete location, concrete people doing concrete things. Um, I, I think it just, it, that, is, that is a testament to the power of the medium of, of words and writing, that you can capture these things that other mediums, sometimes mediums that people think are the, the best medium. You know, I'm in LA, so of course everybody thinks everything should be turned into a film, but I strongly disagree with that because I think novels like yours are, are doing this work that other mediums cannot do. They just are not set up to, to deal with these kind of intellectual, um, internal experiences that are, that are just as true as the things that we see, um, but that you know, we can't capture on camera. So I, I really appreciate I you. With you. <laughs> I really appreciate you uh, laying that out for our listeners. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about before we say our goodbyes? Anything else you want to mention? I think we have a very good conversation. I, I think in the beginning, maybe I was a bit slow for some reason, because it's quite late for me in, in the UK, but, but later on, I become better and better. So you can, I think, edit a bit. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll make you sound, we'll make the reading sound very smooth and beautiful. And um, I, think, All right. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation. So thank you so much for making the time today and, and joining me from, from New York. And uh, I, I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye. All right, I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.